Amen, amen. Oh, y'all can hear me now. Good morning, church fam. On the way to your seat, if you, if you could, give your neighbor a holy handshake or a heavenly hug, whichever, whichever fits you, suits you best. There you go. There you go. Be loving. There we go. Act like y'all like each other just a little bit. <laughs> well, good morning, church family. I'm Stephen. Um, if I haven't got to meet you, hopefully I do get to meet you after the service. Um, one of the members in the congregation who I feel so honored to um, be here and just to even come in contact with Spencer um, last year or the year before last year was a divine appointment in itself. Um, but um, I really do have a passion uh, for the Lord and I have a passion for um, seeing people in our age group in particular. The overwhelming majority is between the ages of 20 and like 35. Sorry, I'm not trying to discriminate but <laughs> we have a lot of college students in here. <laughs> um, but um, I just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity. And um, right now, if you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a series called The Gospel and the Story of God, which is basically just us going back to the foundation. You know, a lot of us have heard about the gospel and we define it as the good news or um, you know, oh, Jesus came down on the cross and that's it. And we haven't really looked at it holistically. So what we've been taking the time to do is rebuild our foundation because some of us have skewed views of what the gospel is. And some of us don't even have a view of what the gospel is and the story of God um, and understanding how um, how the story of Israel ties into it and how this isn't just a biography or, you know, just a, a good story. But it's all of the, it's that it's literature. Um, it's a genealogy. Um, and it's a history book. And so we want to understand that Jesus came to be both Savior and Lord. That's the real good news. Not that he just come down the cross and save you from your sins, but that he come back and he reigned forever and ever. And so as we dive in, um, just to kind of give you an overview right now, um, the first week Spencer kind of did an introduction um, the week after that, we went over the creation, which was last week. Today, we're going to go over the fall, and after that, we'll go into the redemption story and the restoration. Um, and so before, um, in order to get started, I'm going to be reading out of Genesis 3, out of the NIV Bible. Um, if you're upset about that, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and... Bear with me because I am going to read the whole chapter <laughs> and then we'll dive in. <laughs> All right. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" The woman said to the serpent, "We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them were both open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, 
and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. You desire, your desire for your hu- will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, will you, through painful toil, you will eat, fu- eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she, was, she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Holy Spirit, come upon us. I thank you so much for this day. Thank you for gathering us and allowing us to worship in your name, Lord. Um, I pray that today, um, Stephen, get out the car and just allow you to drive and be be the vehicle itself, Lord. I pray that none of my words be spoken, but all yours be spoken, that this resonate with every single heart and mind, no matter where it is um, in this congregation right now, Lord. And I just pray that we soften our hearts and allow you to reveal to us what you have been trying to reveal to us for so long. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. I lift these prayers up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, obviously, um, as was mentioned in the scripture, God said, didn't I tell you not to eat from the fruit? So let's go back a little bit to chapter two, where he actually gave the command for them not to eat from the fruit. In Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work, to work in and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So all God told Adam to do was take care of the garden. You can have anything, literally. You can have anything in the garden. You can have the mangoes, you can have the bananas, you can have the apples, you can have the grapes, but just don't eat that fruit over there. And take care of it, dwell upon it, and we'll be fine. But if you eat it, you're going to die. 
So God gave a simple, simple, easy command, like, just, just don't do that. Man, oh my goodness. It's like, <laughs> I think I was talking to Spencer the other day, and he was like, yeah, it's like your mom tells you not to touch the stove, and like, you just, you just think like, oh, I'm going to touch the stove. Like, I want to touch it. And it's like, you know, well, you actually don't know yet, but we know now it's going to hurt. It's going to burn. It's going to sting. And it's going to stick there for a long time. But for some reason, we're just so attracted to those things, the things that we can't have, we always want. Crazy. Um, so it's, the question is, like, how did, how did this even come about? Like, how did man actually fall? Um, and I think the first way man fell was through deception. Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal the Lord God had made. He was, he was a conniving one. He was smart. He was slick. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the, in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must, and you must not touch it or you will die. And then Satan just lying, of course, as usual, because he always does. You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll know good and evil, and you'll be like God. So, first of all, God said, don't eat it. He didn't say, don't touch it. So, we already have a problem. One of two things happened. Either Adam wasn't listening hard enough, or Eve wasn't listening hard enough, (laughs) or both of them just miscommunicated in some way, shape, or form, and who knows what happened along the way. But obviously, there was some type of miscommunication there because God just said, don't eat it. He didn't even say, don't touch it. So we already have a problem on the the rise. (laughs) This is like the origin of marital problems. (laughs) I'm not married. Uh, I'm not ready yet. Praise God. He, he, he's, he's preparing me. He's preparing my heart and my mind and my soul. But, but from all the married people that I talk to, every time they talk about an issue that they have, they say it always started with communication. So blame Adam and Eve. Let's do it. <laughs> um, another thing he said is that our eyes will be open. Satan said that our eyes will be open and we would know both good and evil. And, Technically, he kind of was right because our eyes were open to both good and evil. And he said, but you will be like God. But the thing is, your eyes will be open. Our eyes are open to both good and evil. But, and, and you will be like God, but you won't have the same capacity as God. We don't have the same capacity as God. So God knows evil. He knows what evil is, but he doesn't dwell in it. And so... We're, while we're, we're introduced to evil and it's able to dwell in us once we're introduced to it, God is able to look at evil and be like, that is not what I want. Um, and it's crazy because the enemy is just obviously full of lies. And the crazy thing is, like, I, the way I look at it is like the art of deception. Like, the enemy is the greatest author of deception. Um, and the way I kind of define it is telling a lot of truth with a little bit of lie or telling a half truth and leaving out the lie. And a lot of times that's what, you know, we hear, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, um, yeah, mama, uh, uh, did you take out the, did you take out the dog and, and wash and wash the dishes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I took out the dog. Okay. But did you wash the dishes? And we just give 
and all of this stems from the beginning. This is where it originated from. Uh, it's a good quote I heard by Jackie Hill Perry um, when she was describing the fall. She said, what the devil didn't tell Eve is that she would not know good and evil the way God did because she would know evil experientially. God is holy. He has never and will never know sin from personal experience. He knows evil like the doctor knows cancer, something he fully understands, but as something that is fully outside of him. But when Eve disobeyed the commandment of God, she would not know evil like a doctor knows cancer, but she would know evil like a patient knows cancer. She would not become the physician. She would become the one who is sick. Come on, Jackie. Shoot. Lord, man. It's crazy. I mean, a lot of, we think we can play physician. Like we think that we can dwell in evil and play physician and we will be okay if we go where every, where everybody and everything is sick. We think that we're not going to get contaminated. But in actuality, God is the only one who can't get contaminated. But we have to understand that and humble ourselves knowing that we are imperfect men and women born into the world from a perfect God. The other way it entered was through the lust of the eyes. Um, it said that when the, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good um, for food and pleasing to the eye, it, it looked good. I mean, it was, you know, it was desirable for her and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Adam was physically present, but spiritually absent. A lot of times, we're in a society where there are a lot of physically present fathers, but mentally and spiritually absent. A lot of us in here grew up without a father, or you had a dad in your home, but, you know, he didn't, he didn't take the time to go to your baseball game. He didn't take the time to, he never took the time to pray with you. He didn't even, he didn't know God himself. He never took the time out just to have dinner with you or give you a hug or tell you that he loved you. And so now we have a skewed view of what a father and the father looks like. So every time you think about God, you think about pain because you resonate your pain with the pain that your father inflicted on you. And that's not the God that we serve. That's not God the father. Our father is just. Our father is loving. Our father is kind. Our father is patient. He's long-suffering. Um, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world is in his, and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of the Father lives forever. So I'm looking at that, and that is a perfect description of all the things that Satan uses to captivate us. The main things, the lust of the eyes. Ooh, ah, that job looks good. Ooh, that car looks good. It, man, I, mm, that watch. All those things are so appealing to us. They look shiny and great. And then when you go buy it and you realize you're $2,000 in credit debt, you're like, man, how did I get here? Was this all just because of something I saw? Or you're crying and weeping on the floor because you're brokenhearted because that relationship, that guy looked really good. But then when you got with him, you were like, oh, it's a lot of nasty, un, unholy things on the inside of his heart that I wasn't ready for. Now I have all these wounds that need to be healed. We desire things that look good, but everything that looks good isn't necessarily ordained by God for us to have. 
Like the reason God put the tree in the garden, but just because he put the tree in the garden doesn't mean you're supposed to have it. Just because God made theology school doesn't mean that you in particular are supposed to go. Just because God made college universities doesn't mean that you in particular are supposed to go. Just because God gave jobs doesn't mean that you're not supposed to go to college or you're not supposed to go to theology school. It's about you and the Father and what he's trying to tell you you need to do. But since we don't have a level of communication with the Father and there's so much disconnection, we just kind of go about life and be like, well, you know, this kind of feel right, so yeah, I might as well. In in first or Second Corinthians four four, it describes Satan as the god of this world, <laughs> the god of this world, and the things that come from the world are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So those things don't come from God the Father. So you can't blame God for us falling down. You can't blame God for how Adam and Eve fell because they were disobedient. <laughs> the effects. And we, then we look at, like, the effects that these things have had on us. Um, Genesis 3, 7, it says, our eyes were open. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. After saying our eyes are open to the truth, we realize that we were wrong. We realize you should never watch that video. You realize you should have never gotten that relationship you realize you should have never bought that car. You should have never moved across the country. You should have never, ever, ever even shook that person's hand. You should have never walked into that club. You should have never took that third drink. You should have never went to that party. You should have listened to your mom. You should have listened to your dad. You should have listened to your sibling when they were telling you not to go. But you went anyway. The other thing it causes broken fellowship with the Father. So looking at um, verses 8 through 10, um, whoop, whoop, there we go. <laughs> looking at verses 8 through 10, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, and I heard, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So God, like, physically walked amongst mankind in the beginning. Now, was that in, form, in the form of Jesus, or was that God the Father of himself walking amongst us? I don't know. We don't know. We will find out someday. <laughs> Some people may argue one thing or another, but um, regardless, we know that he walked among us. So his presence was here. Life was at the core of Eden, and because God's, God's spiritual and tangible presence is there, but sin takes away our ability to sit and rest in his presence. Sin is what breaks us away from the Father. And thank, thankfully, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and then send Holy Spirit to be here so that we can dwell in his presence. But before that, that fellowship was broken. Verse 10, shame. Shame was introduced into the picture. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. How did you know you were naked? Nobody told you you were naked until you sinned, until you fell. Now you have shame. Now you have guilt. Man, everybody, I'm not even going to 
do a hand raise or nothing because if y'all don't raise your hand, you're lying. But everybody's been here before where, <laughs> where you've done something and or something has happened and you've just felt so guilty. Like the weight has just been on your back all day, like knowing, man, I shouldn't have went off on that dude at work. Man, man, I should have, man, I should have gave, I should have gave that dollar to that homeless man. Man, I should have gave him some food. Like it's always something that weighs down on us that makes us feel that guilt. And that's because sin crept into the world. It started all the way from the beginning. And you can't understand where you're going if you don't know where you came from. That's why we're doing this series, because this is, this is foundational. This is important. This is where, I mean, this is where self-image issues came about. Like, who, who, told, who told you you weren't beautiful? Who told you you weren't fearfully and wonderfully made? The world told you that. God didn't tell you that. If you hear that, that came straight from the devil and from the pit of hell. So you rebuke that and you bind it hand and foot and send it back in the name of Jesus. We want to cover up the ugliness. We want to cover up the brokenness in our souls now because we're so shameful, because we're so guilty. And God is like, just lay it down. Just lay it down. Just bring it before me and I can take care of you. Then we have the origin of the blame game. Oh, man, this is where it all started. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here. The woman you put here, God, gave me the fruit. That's why I ate it. Because this woman you said was so great that you took from my rib, she's the one who made me eat the fruit. So, you know, I was trying to be a good, respectful brother, but, you know, she just came and tainted my view. Dude, you were there the whole time. You watched it. And then Eve. Oh, sorry. Let me move over. And then Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. The devil made me do it. He did it. He made me do it. I was trying. I was trying. I was just, I was hungry. I was hungry. That was it. I just wanted something to eat. And, you know, he said it was going to be okay. I was going to be like you and it would be great. Adam was fine. So, you know, we just did. Okay. All right. You notice the serpent doesn't say anything because he know he in the wrong. <laughs> and like we look at this story and we're like, well, why would a good God even allow evil or sin into the picture? It's like, how can you blame God for giving you gifts? And like when, when God gives you a gift, whether you prayed for it or not, you fall into sin because of it. Don't blame God because of your own evil desires that rage war within. That's not God's fault. That's your fault. And you got to take ownership of it. You can blame Adam and Eve too if you want. James 4, 1 through 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get. What you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Your selfish desires within are what cause you to sin, not God's gift, not the devil's enticement. It's your free will to sin against a loving God. 
It is your free will. And we have to start taking ownership of our sin and stop blaming everybody else. There are some deep-rooted wounds. No, I, I'm hyper, you know, I'm, I'm extra aggressive because my dad beat me as a kid. I'm hypersexual because my brother raped me when I was a child. There are some deep-rooted wounds in here. And God understands that, but he wants you to lay it at the foot of the cross and say, hey, let me clothe you. Let me comfort you. Let me work you through that because you can only blame God and blame mama, blame daddy, blame blame brother and sister for so long before you got to go meet them. You can't blame... (laughs) You can't blame the church and their imperfect people for the church hurt that you have. We, as a congregation, as a church family, need to take ownership of it. And we need to learn how to love on people correctly. We, know how, we need to learn how to speak truth in love. But at the same time, you can't walk out of here and be like, well, I'm never going to church again because such and such didn't shake my hand and they didn't make me feel welcome and yada, yada, yada. Well, what is God going to say when you meet him at the gates? He is not going to ask how, how Spencer treated you, how Tabitha treated you, how Nate treated you. He's going to say, what did you do with the gifts I gave you? How did you, how did you serve me? Other thing that came about into the world were generational curses. All right. So it reads, so the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, curse are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and you ate from the uh, tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, and you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken, for the dust you are, and dust you will return. So I'm kind of going to work backwards. Um, start with the woman. So the curse, generational curse that's been brought upon the woman is the pain of childbearing. So when you have your third child and you upset and you discouraged and you punching your husband or squeezing his hand to all get out, you have to... <laughs> You can blame Eve. <laughs> you can blame Eve for that. Um, the other thing he said was, you would desire your husband and he will rule over you. This is one I was tussling with this week, trying to get a better understanding of. Um, and I found the Hebrew definition of desire, and it said, and it's teshuka, which means to dominate or be independent of. And so 
what it's saying here is like there's there will now be a desire for you to rule over your husband, for you to be independent of your husband and make your own decisions and not make it with your husband and not work cohesively with him, but he will rule over you. He will try to dominate you. He will try to demean you. He will try to try to overpower you. And now <laughs> and now we're in a society where a lot of times we as men think that regardless, we have the final say and we don't have to ask our wife what she thinks about this and that. But at the end of the day, God has gifted both of us with different leadership qualities and different qualities that work cohesively together. And that's how it was supposed to be in the beginning. That's why Christ came and he served as a servant leader here with the church so that he could give a depiction of what it's supposed to look like in a marriage. Then the man, the ground will be cursed. So it's not gonna be it's not gonna be fun to work, first of all. So we all, every single one of us, complain about our jobs. But look, at the end of the day, it wasn't supposed to be fun because somebody messed it up for us. Man, can y'all imagine that like going to work every day and be like, I just can't wait. Like, this is great, guys. Like, I'm just hammering. I'm having a good time, y'all. Y'all having me a good time up here working. What's going on, man? Hey, good to see you. Man, what a life that would have been. But now we just complain and make like $300,000 a year. And we're like, oh, man, stupid job, stupid food. Okay, some people don't have food. And there was no, there was no, there was no such thing as death. He said, you have forever and ever. And we're not here yet, but... In the restoration piece, you'll see that. You'll see how God returns to that and how he may allow that for those who follow him. And then for the serpent, he says, um, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, all wild animals. So the serpent's going he's gonna, to he's gonna beneath, be beneath all wild animals. He's going to crawl on his belly for the rest of his life and eat the dust. He's going to eat our dead bones. <laughs> he is gonna, the serpent, the devil, will eat our dead bones. He will devour them. But he will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So it's talking about crushing his head and striking his heel. And if you know, if you've tried, when I was a kid, I tried to kill snakes in my granny's backyard one time. Um, Mom was probably like, what? (laughs) Um, But I remember like, I had a little stick, and I would, like, stick at it and try to, like, cut the tail off and stuff. But it would never die. Like, it was still, you know, it starts slithering away, slithering away. I'm like, man, how come, how come it won't die? But what I later found out is that the only way that you can kill a snake is by, like, crushing its head. Um, that's the only way that it dies. Crazy. I mean, it says he will bruise, you will bruise, the snake will bruise her offspring's heel. And so... Yeah, a bruise hurts. It's going to hurt, but you're going to recover. You're going to get back up. You're going to rise again. And so when we're looking at the story of Jesus and we're looking at where Jesus was crucified, he was crucified at a place called Golgotha. In Aramaic, it means the place of the skull. The reference for that is Mark 15:22. And when you're thinking about it, this is kind of just is very symbolic and a foreshadowing of things to come. Because a lot of us in here know that Jesus, the Son of God, came through the lineage 
of Adam and Eve. Adam named Eve Eve because Eve means the mother of all living. So she is the mother of Jesus Christ. And we know that at the end of the story, because of this, the devil will be under our feet. The devil will be crushed. And at Golgotha, Jesus did die. His heel was bruised. There were thorns in his side. There were thorns on his head. And he was pierced on his side and nails in his hands. He was bruised, but he did go down and he went He went down to the gates of hell and he defeated the enemy and rose back up. He crushed Satan's head so that we don't have to try and crush it ourselves. So what I feel like the root of the problem is, I feel like every time I'm getting ready to teach or process something, some type of issue we have, it literally always comes back to this. The root of the problem is unbelief or lack of trust. The root of the problem is unbelief or a lack of trust. Why do I say that? Um, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Because we always question God. We always want to know, okay, I know you created the universe. I know that your son died. I know that. You know, I know that you provided a free car for me and that I live a luxury lifestyle, but I just don't trust that if you tell me I'm going to move there, you're going to take care of me. I just don't trust that we're going to be okay if we don't eat that fruit. Like, I just feel like we should have it. I feel like we'll be better off if we actually, I think, I, I think, I think we'll be better off if we know good and evil. Okay. Sometimes we question God because we're curious, but a lot of times we question him because we just don't trust him. The lack of trust is what causes us to sin. Somebody said this quote. I hear it all the time. I don't know who it is because I saw several different people um, who quoted it, but it says, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin costs us death. And it causes some of us cost some of us death daily because we continue to live in it, even though we know that we've been reborn. But the beauty in all this is there's even, even in Genesis, even in the beginning, there's like this inkling of hope. Um, in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 21, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is just so symbolic. Like, God covered Adam and Eve in the garden, like even though they sinned against them, even though they completely disregarded the one command, the one thing he said, don't do, he still clothed them in their shame. And when we look holistically at the story, we know that Jesus came to clothe us in his blood and cleanse us in righteousness. And it's crazy how God can even reach you and he can clothe you even in the darkest times, man. Even when, I mean, you hear, I've heard so many stories of people who have literally gone to prison for several murders and then somehow, somehow got out and God saved them while they were in prison. The punishment that we receive on earth is mercy. Whatever punishment it is we receive on earth is mercy because (laughs) once you pass away, there's an eternal punishment. 
And I know, I know, I know that none of us want to endure that. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For the righteous fall seven times, they, sh- they shall rise again, though. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. The wicked will stumble, but the righteous will fall, the righteous will fall and the wicked stumble. The wicked will continue to stumble. You will continue to live in sin when you live a lukewarm Christian life. You will continue to live in sin when you're not even trying to fight your desires. When you're not even trying to fight the drunkenness. You're not even trying to fight the anger. You're just going to keep fighting. You're going to keep cussing people out. You don't care. But righteous person falls and rises over and over again because we constantly repent and we constantly go to the cross and we constantly say, I'm an imperfect man serving a perfect God and I need you to renew me and I need you to restore me daily. Um, I'm going to get Jordan to come up here as I, as I begin to close. But um, so this summer, uh, this summer, Antonio was staying with me, my buddy Antonio. Some of you guys met Antonio, happiest man in America. He's always like, hey, everybody, welcome. And it's not even his house. Only person who will welcome you in your own house. Um, but I remember going to Antonio's house and he called me. He was like, hey, man, I got all these gnats in my house. And I was like, Okay. He was like, yeah, I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to get rid of them. It's like 20 of them. And I was like, okay, let's like, let me figure out a way to like get rid of these gnats. Like, let me come up, let me Google a concoction or something. And then the next day he called me. He was like, bro, it's like 50 gnats in here. I was like, for real? And so I went over there and it was like 50 gnats in the, um, in the laundry room. I was like, good Lord, where are these gnats coming from? We're looking all over the place for the source and it's nothing there, no leaks or nothing. And so he's asking me about stuff to do. He's calling an apartment complex, trying to get an exterminator or something. And he's just, no luck, none at all, none at all. Nobody's doing anything. Um, And by the time I finally get there, there's hundreds of gnats in the laundry room and in his room. I'm like, bro, this is crazy. This is like an infestation now. Like, I don't even get it. And there was no food in the house. Um, well, no fruit in the house. Um, so it's crazy looking at that story just because we ended up making a concoction, right? And I put vinegar, I put apple cider vinegar and like ripe bananas and like ripe apples and stuff in these little jars and poked some holes in it. And over the course of the days, all the gnats started going in and like they were just dying off. By the end of the week, all the gnats were gone. It's minus like 10, 15 of them maybe around the house. But for the most part, they were gone. These are hundreds of gnats, but they're all gone. Crazy thing was like the gnats were still going even though they saw other gnats in there dead. Like they still would go. They would still go. They see other gnats dying and suffering and they're just like, I'm still going to go in there. Like it smells good. It probably tastes good because it smells good. And that's a lot of us in here. We continue to see our fathers and our mothers and our grandparents suffer from sins in their lives and our friends. Like we see, we see how drunk driving can get us in a car accident. We see how sexual immorality can end us up in a disease, with a disease or with a, a baby with someone who you don't want to be with the rest of your life. 
we see how cheating on our taxes can technically end us up in jail someday. We see how unforgiveness can just hold us hostage and how it can put us in a prison and you think you're holding somebody else in a prison but really the only prisoner is you. And it's because it looks good, smells good, tastes good. We think it tastes good. But as persistent as um, Antonio was with getting the gnats out of his house, it's how persistent we need to be with getting the sin out of our life and pursuing holiness towards the Lord. It's not about what you can't have and what you can't do anymore. It's about what God has already ordained for you to have. There's joy in all these things if we just experience them, if we just allow ourselves to dwell in them. If we, if we just go ahead and step into our calling and serve in the church or start the business or start the Bible study or shake that hand, get into that relationship, whatever it is God is calling you to do, operating in obedience gives you that joy. It gives you that peace. And the question is, what is your fruit? What is leading you? What is leading you towards death? Is it money, security, is it lying? anger, foul language. Point is, Satan's trying to give you the fruit. And a lot of us in our society are taking it. Matthew 7, 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate that leads to life, and many and very few find it. Only a few find it. And that's because only a few pursue holiness and only a few want to take the time to uproot the sin out of their lives and allow themselves to dwell in the presence of God. That's why he sent Holy Spirit here so that he could dwell with us and we could have heaven on earth. But we don't want to do that. Matthew 24, 37, 39 says, but as the days of Noah were, so shall it be as so shall also the coming of the son of man be for as in the days of that were before the flood. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It says, so it shall be in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, there were thousands, I don't know, maybe millions, but we know at least thousands of people on the earth and only eight got saved. Eight. Eight people got saved. I don't understand what, I don't know what it is that we have to drill in our hands to understand that we have to pursue this like only eight people are going to get saved. Like we have to pursue our walks in Christ like only eight people are going to get saved. Because the devil is working really, really hard. He's working really hard because he knows he's running out of time. Philippians 2 12 to 13 says, therefore, my friends, as you have also obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. This is Paul talking. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in the order to fulfill his good purpose. Because Jesus is risen, we don't have to take the fruit, y'all. We don't have to take the fruit. We don't have to live in this. So we even have the promise in the Old Testament so many times. And I want us to rest on this scripture, Psalm 62, 5 through 8. It says, yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope 
comes from him. Truly, he is my rock, my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and honor depend on him. He is my rock. He is my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Let him be your refuge. Let him be your salvation. Let him be your rock. Let him be your rock. Stop trying to eat all the fruit. So ask yourself what the fruit is in your life that Satan's trying to tempt you with. And who or what has the fullness of your trust right now? But this may have been somewhat of a downer message because I'm telling us all about how sinful our hearts are. But the beauty of it is there's redemption on the other side. Because Jesus came and he rose and he, well, he died and he rose again and he bore all the burdens and he bore all the sins for us already. So we don't have to take the fruit. It's easy for us. Walk in the grace, walk in the love. Let us bow.